Gary Barker. Today our reading will be John 1, verse 35 to 42. Some Bibles will call this section, John's disciples follow Jesus. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The word of the Lord. I hope you picked up the little line in the text this morning, come and you will see this wonderful invitation from Jesus to these early disciples, come and you will see. You know, when I was in the uh, sixth grade, my desk in, in Mr. Penrose's sixth grade class was in the very back row, Weber, right? In the back by the window with, uh, I think, Williams, and uh, White, I think there was a Zimmerman, a Young. We were all back there by the window in the back. And I liked it back there for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but it wasn't the last, apparently. Mr. Penrose somehow figured out that I was having trouble focusing. So one day, he made me trade places with a Barker, I think it might have been. <laughs> or maybe a Brown, an Adams, I don't know, but all I knew was suddenly I was in the first row. <laughs> it helped, but it wasn't long before I was sitting in another chair, the big chair at the optometrist's office. You know, the one where you answer all those questions, one or two, two or three, and on it goes until they find the right lens for you. So I got the lenses. I had a pair of these black horn-rimmed glasses, and my brothers started calling me Poindexter. You know, growing up, it's just so brutal, isn't it? But at least I could see. It's good to see. Who doesn't want to see? To move up, to get a better look, to be closer, to, to see what's really going on. This text today, typically we read in worship a few weeks after Christmas, a season called Epiphany, a word that simply means you know, to be something revealed, something that's coming to the light, where there's sudden insight into a, a new reality, an epiphany. Jesus is to be the great revealer. In Jesus, the Bible reminds us again and again that we see God. I have come, he said, that you might know 
my Father. If you know me, you know my Father, Jesus would say. So the birth of Jesus has always led people to see life anew. In Jesus we are seen, we're given sight, the blind, the eyes of the blind are, are opened. To follow Jesus is to enter this lifelong process of discovering more about God than we knew before, to continually have these moments of epiphany again and again and again. We had our little Bible class in the last hour, and as we were going through it, someone said, well, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Epiphany. That God is showing us more and more of himself. It's to see more clearly what this life holds for us, what it's to be about for us. And so Jesus invites his new disciples. It's just starting. And it says, come. Come and you will see. It's this invitation over and over again in the short story of these disciples. Inviting them into a, an epiphany of their own. Everyone, if you heard that text today, or if you look at it now, everyone is looking and seeing and beholding. You know, the, the visionary language is all over this. Of course, John's gospel is always filled with these double meanings. To see. What does he really mean when he calls us to come and you will see? To see is to comprehend. It's to know something it's more than just visually seen, but it's to take it in. First, it's John the Baptist who sees. It's the day after he had baptized Jesus in a place that was known as Bethany beyond the Jordan, uh, to distinguish it from Bethany near Jerusalem. This one was across the Jordan River on the east side of the river. There's a picture of this location, I believe. This is where they think that Jesus was baptized, Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's an interesting part of the story, I think, that only John's gospel really gives us this story of Jesus' future disciples who were attached to the Baptist, to John the Baptist in his ministry. The usual story that we know is that Jesus meets them down by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, right? And calls them from the sea, they leave their boats and their nets, and they, they follow him, and he says, come and I will make you fishers of people. And they go. That's the typical calling of the disciples story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give to us. The Gospel of John gives us their meeting out here at the river across the Jordan, a long way from Galilee, a different place. And that makes sense to me, that Maybe confusion or contradictory stories, perhaps. But it makes some sense that maybe they met him here first. Andrew and the other disciple, John never names himself in his own gospel, right? He always calls himself the one whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. Most think that it was actually John, the gospel writer himself. So they were out there with John the Baptist looking for meaning in life, inquisitive, looking, searching, looking for something more in their lives. Isn't that how faith happens for us? Isn't it usually one moment? It's not usually one moment or one conversation. 
but it becomes a series of events and conversations, people in our lives, inquiries that we make, a book we read. It, it's just, it kind of builds and builds and builds. It's looking and looking and looking, searching for that ultimate meaning in our lives. Some of you might remember Bono, U2's frontman, that great song out of the 80s. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Bono in the 80s. By the early 2000s, though, Bono says this, this long quote, but it's such a great quote, I wanted to read it. So a few years later, he goes, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. At the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, you sow, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies region and logic. Love interrupts, if you like. The consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. searching, looking. So too with Andrew and John, the gospel writer. There they are. With John the Baptist attached to him, Jesus walks by. The baptizer says to them, there he is, there's the one. Right there, he's going right by us. I just baptized him. He's the one. Look to him, behold him. He is the Lamb of God, and he's going to change the world. Go with him. Behold all of that. See who Jesus really is, the Lamb of God, the expected Messiah. And they started to follow him. They just went. They were ready for this moment. Oh, he's the Lamb of God. We've been looking for him. I'm going with him. They knew all about that ancient Jewish tradition about the Lamb of God. This symbolic way the scriptures had used for years and years, the rabbis had taught it. The temple priest, according to the law, would kill a spotless lamb, a one-year-old male, usually on the 14th day of the month, right at twilight, they would slaughter the lamb, and the blood would be spread over the altar, and it was meant to be a symbol of the forgiveness of their sins. They got it. They've been raised, you know, in this idea. Second Chronicles tells us the story about when Solomon dedicates the new temple in Jerusalem, sacrificed, and it says this, 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine you know, as a clergy person, I'm so glad we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> All that blood. 
But every serious believer in those days knew that the blood of animals could not really take away sin. This ritual, it was more of a placeholder until some future day when the ultimate sacrifice would be made. The Psalms, they even warned people about their useless sacrifices, saying God's not pleased with them. They were kind of going overboard, obviously, 120,000 sheep. (laughs) The book of Hebrews said that what everyone really knew, that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The whole system was pointing forward to what would happen one day when there would be a final sacrifice for this broken relationship between God and his creation. Hebrews would say, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. John, Jesus walking by, John the Baptist says, it's happening. There he is right now. Look at him. Behold him, the Lamb of God. It's arrived. And so they went. And I think that's the big move in the text today, that they simply followed Jesus. These two disciples of John the Baptist, they get this new vision. And they now determine that they're going to go with Jesus, leaving John beyond, behind. And it wasn't really a loss to John. In fact, that was what he had hoped for, that he would decrease and that he would increase. And you know, they would go. They would go with him. You know, we've been thinking a lot about, as I mentioned, the, the vision of this congregation lately. PNC has been talking a lot about, well, what do we value as a church? What, you know, what, do, we, what do we really believe? What, what are we looking for in a, in a pastor? And on it goes, that whole conversation. The Bible from the, every page points to Christ alone as the focus of the church. The first and foremost vision is to place our central purpose and our hope in him, to look at him, to know him, to see him, and to follow him. I got to read in this book, it's in our our library this week, it's called Presbyterians in Zion. I hadn't really seen it yet. It's all about every Presbyterian church that ever was in the state of Utah. So I started reading through it, and Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church there's our whole kind of history laid out right there in that book. In fact, Kathy Terrian, one of our own, wrote that article in the book. So I started to read it. It stated how we started from a, a group from Wasatch Press that came down Foothill Boulevard and came over here, and they met in the, uh, the Langdon's basement in 1961. Just a few people for Bible study. And I kept meeting, and three years later, that group decided that they'd grown large enough, they took out a loan. They built a building, well, they built this room. (laughs) But it didn't quite look like this because it was all secondhand folding chairs and there was no carpet, it was just a bare cement floor and it was that way for four years. Four years until 1969, they were able to put some pews in and carpet it and they retired a mortgage, $125,000 they took out on loan. And they paid it all off, 1969, and they put pews in. How about that? It's amazing. It's vision. It's what it is. It's focus on Christ. In fact, I was reading that book, and this mission statement that's in your bulletin, and, and before you know it, 
This was their vision way back when, to invite people to experience Jesus Christ and to become passionate followers. It's the the Brother Andrew movement all over again. Of course, it's no wonder that Jesus' first words to them were these, what are you looking for? What are you after? It's the question, isn't it? It's the great existential question if we're really willing to face it. It's that huge question. What are you looking for? An open-ended question. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face. We sing, and he wants to know, what are you looking for? When I look at who we are as a congregation, I see people that pray a lot. (laughs) These are just my own observations over these months that I've been here. That prayer is ultimately very important, that there's this other, uh, kind of a global interest that we can help out globally around the world, and we have done that. So it's this great hope. I see kids. And if anything else, we're about kids here. If you come on a Tuesday, you're going to hear kids. Come on a Thursday or a Wednesday or a Friday. Come most any day, you're going to hear crying, <laughs> screaming. We're about kids trying to pass on this hope and this life. Why are we here? Passing it on. Living our life together. We have this mission, it seems, in the city of Salt Lake. What can we do to be a part of this? How can we spread some hope and help? Back in those days, these apostles before they were apostles even, they were just people. They were just men with hearts that were searching, wondering what it's all about, asking that question, why are we here? Why is there evil? What happens after we die? They were just guys who were trying to listen for something deeper and have their lives be more impactful and meaningful. We don't know much about Andrew. He's always just referred to as Peter's brother. Pretty much his legacy. He's the prototypical younger brother. Hardly mentioned beyond this scene in the Bible. I get it. You know, for the first 20 years of my life, I was pretty much known as Little Weber. <laughs> yeah, with three older brothers, everywhere I went, they had already been. School, church. You know, it came time for me to go to summer camp when I was eight years old. And so I carted across country to northern Wisconsin for 10 weeks, two five-week sessions. So that's all right. I was with my brothers, of course. They were already there. They split us all, us campers, they split us up into two tribes. Wouldn't do this anymore, I know, but they did it back then. We were, some were the Cheyennes, but we Webbers were Chippewas. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> There were no girls at my camp. (laughs) So I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) So I was a Chippewa. In fact, my oldest brother, Bob, he was the chief of the Chippewas. He still has his canoe paddle. Every time I visit him, he brings it out and reminds me that he's the chief. (laughs) 
I still chide my 93-year-old dad about my brother Bob. I say, it's all about Bob, isn't it, Dad? Isn't Bob sweet? Isn't Bob cute? Look at little Bobby. I'm sure my dad, um, I'm not even sure he really remembers my name. <laughs> Sometimes when I call, I say, hey, Dad, it's number four. But that's okay. Because the first followers of Christ were, was a little brother, Andrew. Jesus wanted us to know that it's okay. That Andrew mattered to him. That no one is left out. That the church is always to be a little brother or a little sister movement. It's for those who aren't chiefs. They can come. But I don't have to always be in charge. <laughs> it's about the least of these. Jesus always working the fringes, inviting those who previously were, were not at the table, come and, and be a part of it. You're included here too. Andrew and John, they, they seem to sort of fumble with it all, don't they, at that point? What are you looking for? Well, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> the question doesn't mean, well, are you at the motel in Jerusalem, or where, where are you? No, it's the same word here, where are you staying, that Jesus used later when he said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. They're asking what he's about. What would it be like to abide with him, to go with him, to be a part of what he's a part of? And what does he say? Come, and you will see. It's all future tense. It's all visionary stuff. It's, it's all forward-facing. Let's go together. And then you'll see, you'll understand, it's to be an epiphany. Paul would later write of his own experience and say, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. I press on, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead. This last week I read this book to my grandson, three-year-old. He gave it to me one night. Oh, the places you will go. Right? You know this one. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. And the favorite line is that whole Dr. Seuss. It's opener out there in the wide open air. Love that. Come, and you will see. You know, perhaps the, the line that we need to hold on to the most from this scene is, is a somewhat strange time stamp that is put on this story. It was about four in the afternoon. Do we need to know that? Is that important to us? I think it is. That history was in the making. The first followers of Jesus, four o'clock, Mark. It's history. It happened. This is happening right now, too. Here you are. It's, oh man, 10 to 12 <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Mark it. Dale Bruner in his commentary on John says that every day at 4 o'clock we should sort of stop what we're doing. And just remember, that's when the first followers started following Jesus. And I like that because it's kind of near quitting time for a lot of people. Four o'clock. The lifts shut off at four o'clock, right? Hopefully, right? This week. <laughs> Fort Market. Follow Jesus. Four o'clock. 
C.S. Lewis once said that relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. Mark it. What's your time? What's your, what day are you following him? <clears throat> so, what happened there? <laughs> Mark it. <laughs> Mark that moment. <laughs> Lost my voice. Oh, thanks, Mark. There's C. Mark. <laughs> Mark it. <clears throat> Usually it happens when I get really emotional. <laughs> but anyway, what a great line, though. It was 4 o'clock when they started to follow him. What time will it be when we follow? Today's a day, I think, to, to move from the, the back of the room to the front of the room. To take our seat up there with, with the A's, with Andrew <laughs> and Abigail. I don't know who else is up there. But take your seat at the front where you can really get a, a look at what's going on. You can... You can have this vision, a new vision that God is giving to us. You want to be where you can see. What are you looking for? Charles Spurgeon, 19th century preacher, seemed to capture our hearts with this. He said, take your eyes off everything else. Behold the Lamb of God. You need not see anything else. For nothing else is worth seeing. Behold him. Behold him. Come and you will see. Amen? Let's uh, reflect a little bit as we stand together um, and declare our